The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. Eight episodes in, and we're already on scene four of this pressure cooker of a play. By this time in our journey through Hamlet together, we were only reaching the end of the first scene. Macbeth really is a very different play. This week, we get a heavy dose of dramatic irony as we return to Fores and to King Duncan, happy in the aftermath of his successful set of battles. The stage directions begin the scene with a flourish, some kind of trumpety military blast that sets the tone and, more practically, can usher on the king and his attendants. He's accompanied by his sons, Malcolm and Donald Bain, Lennox, and any others a director might employ to populate the scene. The king speaks first. Is execution done on Cawdor? Are not those in commission yet returned? The last time we saw Duncan, he was telling his trusted messenger to go and tell Macbeth that he had been appointed Thane of Cawdor, and announced that the traitorous Cawdor was to be executed. Now he's wondering if the job has been done, and whether or not those doing it have returned. His older son Malcolm replies, My liege, they are not yet come back, but I have spoke with one that saw him die, who did report that, very frankly, he confessed his treasons, implored your highness pardon, and set forth a deep repentance. Nothing in his life became him like the leaving it. He died as one that had been studied in his death, to throw away the dearest thing he owed as twere a careless trifle. No, he says, they aren't back yet. But Malcolm has heard a report of Cawdor's death. He was apologetic, confessed what he had done, begged for the king's forgiveness, and showed a deep repentance. Malcolm's description of this Cawdor's end is almost beautiful. Nothing the man ever did was as impressive as how he behaved at the end of it. He died as if he had been rehearsing for it, as one that had been studied in his death. And then he didn't make a big fuss, as though throwing away his dearest possession, life itself, as if it were a careless trifle. Duncan can't resist a little life advice for his son here. It's yet another shared line, but I won't point out every single instance of them in this scene because there are too many of them. If you check out the podcast website, thehamletpodcast.com, the show notes for this and every episode will lay out the text very clearly and you can see when and how lines are shared between characters. Duncan explains, There's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. He was a gentleman on whom I built an absolute trust. The idea of not judging someone's character from their face is an old one, don't judge a book by its cover. This Cawdor was a gentleman, Duncan says, one he trusted absolutely. If you have even a sketchy knowledge of Scottish history or what this play is about, you can feel the irony of this line. We in the audience know more than the characters on stage, and that's what dramatic irony means. For even more dramatic irony, though, Shakespeare has Macbeth enter right as the king is saying absolute trust. The king says that, and here's Macbeth. Do we believe it? No, we don't. Macbeth is with Banquo, Ross and Angus, so now everyone is reunited after the fighting. Duncan is delighted to see his newly decorated captain, and we get a new piece of information. Macbeth is his cousin. 
so they are kinsmen. Duncan speaks to Macbeth in a very complicated formal language, which Shakespeare uses to give a feeling of sort of medieval tribal thanes and Scots talking to each other like the nobles they are. Coleridge called it the language of effort, which I think is quite brilliant. Duncan's welcome is a real mouthful. He says, O worthiest cousin, the sin of my ingratitude even now was heavy on me. Thou art so far before that swiftest wing of recompense is slow to overtake thee. Would thou hadst less deserved that the proportion both of thanks and payment might have been mine. Only I have left to say, more is thy due than more than all can pay. In a nutshell, I feel guilty because I haven't shown you how grateful I am for what you've done, but you've achieved so much for me that even the fastest display of gratitude or recompense cannot keep up with you. It would almost be better if you had done less and so deserved less, because then I could at least try to display proportional gratitude and be the one who did too much. But I can't, so all I can say is that I owe you more than I can ever repay. And if you thought that was a formal effort, here's Macbeth's reply. The service and the loyalty I owe in doing it pays itself. Your Highness' part is to receive our duties, and our duties are to your throne and state, children and servants, which do but what they should by doing everything safe toward your love and honour. Did you get that? He's saying... No, Your Majesty, it is our duty to support you, and doing so is an honour which is payment enough. It is the King's job to receive these duties, and we all do our best. It's not the greatest speech Macbeth will ever recite, and it's notoriously hard to learn because the rhythm and the syntax are very uneven. Perhaps because Macbeth is emotional or distracted, or maybe even a little bit shy. Or perhaps he has something else on his mind. Duncan, however, replies with formality and generosity. Welcome hither. I have begun to plant thee, and will labour to make thee full of growing. Noble Banquo, that hast no less deserved, nor must be known no less to have done so, let me enfold thee and hold thee to my heart. In the Bible, there are many images of God planting seeds and imagery of men being like trees that grow with support and watering and nurture and so on. Here, Duncan is echoing that. He's telling Macbeth that he's invested in him and looks forward to even greater successes thanks to this support. Macbeth is, after all, having a brilliant play so far. And, lest we forget, Duncan also equates Banquo with Macbeth except he does mention him second. But, the king insists, Banquo has no less deserved, and so he hugs Banquo too, and holds him to his heart. Banquo's formal response is shorter, and therefore a little bit neater. Picking up this idea of planting and growing, he says, There if I grow, the harvest is your own. Whatever the fruits that may come from Duncan's support will be for Duncan himself. So it's all very flattering and formal and polite. But Duncan is deep down a big, sentimental softy, and he's moved to tears by all this splendidly formal talk. He says, 
my plenteous joys, wanton in fullness, seek to hide themselves in drops of sorrow. Sons, kinsmen, thanes, and you whose places are the nearest, know we will establish our estate upon our eldest, Malcolm, whom we name hereafter the Prince of Cumberland, which honour must not unaccompanied invest him only, but signs of nobleness like stars shall shine on all deservers. From hence to Inverness, and bind us further to you. All this joy, this wanton or unbridled happiness, is so much that Duncan is in tears. But he addresses the assembled community, sons, kinsmen, thanes, and then you whose places are the nearest. One might think that this would be his children, but perhaps it's just physical proximity, and given that Banquo and Macbeth have been the ones he's just been talking to, he could be addressing them. He announces to everyone that Malcolm will now be the Prince of Cumberland, which was the traditional heir to the throne of Scotland, just as the Prince of Wales is the title given to the heir to the English throne. Duncan also insists that Malcolm won't be the only one getting a new title, but that signs of nobleness, titles, honours and the like, like stars, will shine on all deservers. Sounds like anyone and everyone is getting a promotion or a bonus from the king. What's very important here is that the Scottish crown was not necessarily hereditary. Duncan does indeed appoint his son as his heir, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Macbeth was earlier told to expect more, that greater honour that Ross mentioned. Given the prophecy from the witches, Macbeth might have thought that perhaps he would be the Prince of Cumberland, but that's not happening since Malcolm has just got the nod. Duncan announces that he will progress to Inverness, which is where Macbeth lives. From hence to Inverness, he says, and bind us further to you. Since he's going to visit Macbeth's home, he's saying he wants to strengthen their bond even further. And Macbeth has another formal reply. The rest is labour which is not used for you. I'll be myself the harbinger and make joyful the hearing of my wife with your approach. So humbly take my leave. Any work that is not done to serve the king is useless, he's saying, and he himself will ride ahead to be the harbinger, or messenger, to bring the joyful news that the king is coming to stay at Inverness. And we learn here that Macbeth has a wife. She just happens to be one of the most famous women Shakespeare ever created, but we will talk about her soon enough. Harbinger is a particularly interesting choice here. Messenger would fit the metre just the same, but Shakespeare chooses the far more ominous word. As if reminding the whole court of Macbeth's new appointment, Duncan sees him off by saying, My worthy Cawdor. We get yet more language of deserving. Macbeth is worthy of the title of Thane of Cawdor. And now we get another kind of split scene. Duncan and his party stay on stage and chat with each other, but we don't hear their conversation. Macbeth, however, turns to us for an aside, a short soliloquy. The Prince of Cumberland. That is a step on which I must fall down, or else o'erleap, for in my way it lies. Stars hide your fires, let not light see my black and deep desires. The eye wink at the hand, yet let that be, which the eye fears when it is done to see. 
the effect of the witch's prophecy is working on Macbeth really quickly. In the previous scene, he was thinking that if chance might have him king, why chance may crown him. But here, already, he's got very different ideas. The Prince of Cumberland, that's a problem. Malcolm now has the claim of being heir to the throne. As Macbeth puts it, and this is a brilliant image of a set of steps, that is a step on which I must fall down or else o'erleap, for in my way it lies. The image is really clear, the feeling of a set of steps between him and the crown, and there's an order to them. And if he's going to go up, he's going to have to leap past other people and maybe skip his place in the queue. So he either has to fall down, he says, and stop, acknowledging Malcolm's newly confirmed place in the pecking order, or else o'erleap, jump past Malcolm. Because Malcolm is now standing between him and the crown. Stars hide your fires, he says. Duncan used the image of stars to indicate just how many new honours he would bestow on this happy, newly peaceful Scotland. Macbeth, meanwhile, wants the stars to extinguish themselves so that they won't be able to illuminate his black and deep desires. What he wants now is unthinkable. He tells his eyes not to look at his hands because of what he wants to do with those hands. But he still wants the result. Let his hands accomplish this act that is so shocking that the eyes will fear to see it when it is done. It's interesting that Macbeth is already trying to separate his actions from his eyes. He wants the result, but he doesn't want to have to see it, because he knows it will haunt him, and that that will be terrible. Let that be, which the eye fears when it is done to see. The difference between what we do and what we remember, and how visions and memories can affect our actions, is vital to this play. But for now, we have a clear sense that Macbeth is going to take matters into his own hands to achieve what he desires. He's not leaving it to prophecy or to fate any more. Whether this means he will kill Malcolm or Duncan or both remains to be seen. Macbeth now exits, and the volume comes back up on Duncan in the middle of his conversation with Banquo. True, worthy Banquo. He is full so valiant, and in his commendations I am fed. It is a banquet to me. Let's after him, whose care is gone before to bid us welcome. It is a peerless gentleman. Yet more tragic or dramatic irony here. Duncan is singing Macbeth's praises, directly after what Macbeth just told us. He's planning to kill him. Duncan thinks he's marvellous. Duncan considers Macbeth so valiant... It's like a great banquet, and Duncan is fed and nourished by all Macbeth's great qualities. He makes to wrap up the scene and says, let's after him, whose care is gone before to bid us welcome. Macbeth is so good, he's rushed ahead to ensure that they get a good welcome when they reach Inverness. Macbeth is, he says, a peerless kinsman. There's nobody better. This from the man who just told his son that there's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. The poor king. The welcome that awaits them in Inverness is put in motion as soon as the next scene begins. We are about to meet Lady Macbeth, so I sincerely hope you'll tune in for the next episode. I'll speak to you then. <laughs>